0: I titled the sermon, Standing Tall in a Bowing World. Standing Tall in a Bowing World. And I apologize up front, especially to the kids who felt like I left them on a cliffhanger last couple weeks ago. It's going to happen again, right? We're only going through verse 18 today, and so you're going to have to come back next week to find out how this story unfolds. Um, many of us are actually familiar with this fiery furnace chapter. Um, I remember as a little guy learning this story, but I got to tell you, there are so many things that jumped out to me as I sat in these verses this week, I thought we're going to need two sermons to make this happen. So 1 through 18 today, standing tall in a bowing world, let's just begin with the question we left off last week asking, is Nebuchadnezzar really a changed man? Now I remember last week what he said, this was his word. He responded to the the work that Daniel had done through the, the Lord in telling him his dream and giving the interpretation. He said, Truly your God, Daniel, is God of gods and Lord, Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Now, is this lip service or is this a changed man? Sometimes, even in our own lives, will bump into situations where people will run into a a church experience or contact with God's Word or something. Maybe they see a movie or hear a song, and it sounds like, oh, man, they're changed. But here's what happens. The best way to see the the change is is how does it carry? How does time unfold? And the call is constantly keep on your knees before the God of all glory. Well, chapter 3 is going to answer, answer this resoundingly. That was lip service. This man is not changed. He is not a a man on his knees before the sovereign God who is Lord of Kings. He is indeed still full of himself and full, full of pursuit of his own glory. So let's see how he responds to this interpretation from last week. I called the first three verses here legacy project, legacy project. You can feel the age approaching on Nebuchadnezzar. He knows he's getting older and he's concerned about what happens after he gets too old uh, to keep things together. Here's what he does. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, that's 90 feet tall, and breadth was 9 feet wide, 6 cubits. So probably a large foundation this stood upon, uh, a, a very strong, tall, large foundation, and then an image Uh, A lot like the one we saw last week, only this one is made of gold, made of gold, probably overlaid with gold for structural support. But imagine this setting up now in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon, in the sunshine. This would have been spectacular to behold, shimmering from long distances away. You could see this. This is about 50 foot tall ceiling. Imagine 90 feet, okay? That's way up there. Um... So he sets this up. Now what is he doing? What is this? Well, this is a full-fledged rejection of the gracious revelation of God in chapter 2. This is Nebuchadnezzar's saying, "Okay, God, I see what you have written, I reject your reality and I insert my own. I write the story. I will write my own destiny. I am sovereign." That is his statement in doing this. He seeks to overrule the God of heaven and announce a dynasty. He wants to be clear. What, there's going to be a a Medo-Persian empire that comes in? No, no, no. I don't think so. And then the Greeks and then the Romans? Nope. It's going to be Babylonian. And I will stand tall over it all. Look at the differences here, artist's renditions from chapter 2 in the image of the of the dream that God revealed. This is true history. And uh, the one next to it then is Nebuchadnezzar's imagination of how he would prefer things to go. Um, silly little man trying to rewrite what the sovereign God has written. It's interesting. So you've got the head of gold. We saw that last week. That's Nebuchadnezzar. But then the, the, the arms and chest of silver and then bronze and then iron. So these uh, succeeding kingdoms that are coming, he says, no, i tell you what I'll do. I'll fix this statue. It, it, it had a foot problem. I'm going to fix this. I'm just going to make it all gold. It's all me. And only me. And then he gave a proclamation, which I found fascinating. This is from an ancient Babylonian document. He said something along these lines. May future kings respect the monument. It's talking about the image. Remember the praise of the gods. He who respects... My royal name, the king says, who does not abrogate or replace or undo my statutes and not change my decrees, his throne shall be secure. His life will last long and his dynasty shall continue. You see what he's after? He wants to establish himself as the sovereign over all those who would rule. And if they give him the right honor and they don't change or undo his rule and reign, then he can be dead and gone and still ruling over a dynasty through the image that stands 90 feet tall, casting a long shadow over all who would come after him. This really is a towering image of a temporary king. That's all it is. That's, that's, what, that's what it boils down to. Now, he put tremendous wealth into this, and I was just struck as... Where did the gold come from? Okay, let's do a little little history lesson, track it back, okay? So he's taken the city, he's taken Jerusalem, and so a, a huge amount of gold has come from the holy city, which, where did that gold come from? That gold came looted from the Egyptians, much of it As God led his people out of slavery and and they gave freely. They looted the richest nation on the earth at the time and brought that gold to Jerusalem. And then here is in the heart of paganism a a statue made by Nebuchadnezzar taking this gold and building it up in in an image to his own glory. You begin to see just how absolutely self-absorbed this man had become. Pride and power and self-glorification. These things are not new to the history of mankind. They go together quite often. In fact, if you turn on the news, you will see echoes of these in our day. Rampant displays. Oftentimes, when it comes to ruling or overseeing or positions of authority, you see this grow. And we just say this. When you consider leaders, be it in politics or in the church, be warned of leaders who basically exist to point to themselves. Be careful with leaders like that because they can get so full of themselves that they forget that they are there by the hand of God. And they are sustained. Every breath they draw is a gift from him. They are to kneel before him. Now, in our world, we don't see often displays of men and women in positions of leadership and power like that. So, pride, power, and self-glorification, that is Nebuchadnezzar's aim. That is his, his love. That is the treasure of his heart. And that is where he is aiming for all of this display. I was struck by this because the reality is that there's a, there's a little Nebuchadnezzar in all of us, right? You think about the little golden statue, little, little King Nebuchadnezzar that sits on your, on your shoulder. And he, he's probably holding a pitchfork, okay? And he's like, hey, make it about you. Don't forget about you. Glorify you. It's all about you. Everybody exists for you. It's you, you, you. That's in us, isn't it? The echo is there. The question is not, is there pride in my life? The question is, where is it and how is it being expressed? We are at odds with pride. We are at war. We are seeking to hunt and kill, choke it out, to walk in humility as our Savior modeled for us. As we read in Philippians 2. One of the ways to understand sin at its most, most basic nature is, is from Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. That's everyone in this room. We're all sinners. And then it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? One of the things it means is this. Sin is a failure to treasure the glory of God. Well, what do we treasure instead? Ourselves. We begin to live for our glory. We begin to, li- to, to want to be sovereign. We want to be the one who writes the story. We want to be the one who gets the glory. That's the inclination. And friends, that's nothing new. That's nothing new. That tracks all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and before. Because the tempter in Genesis 3 made the same mistake when he looked to the glory of God and sought it for himself. Sin is a failure to treasure the glory of God. So what is the biggest problem for Nebuchadnezzar? It's exactly that. He treasures himself. He thinks of himself. And even after experiencing the glory of God, literally face to face in his interactions in the last chapter, he has forgotten so quickly the glory of the God of heaven. And he is obsessed with himself. He walks around as if staring in a mirror. The golden head of the statue is now the entire statue. The plain of Dura, I was struck by this. This is the same location where the Tower of Babel was sought to be raised. Remember this? Babylon, okay, the plain of Dura. So he goes to the same place where God interrupted the work of of this unification project to show what? The glory of man In, in disobedience to what God had said. Be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill the earth. Spread out. And they said, no, we won't do that. We will gather together and we will build a tower, a monument to human achievement. God came down, cursed their language, and struck that project, brought it to an immediate halt. They couldn't understand one another, and the nations were born. The nations were born in judgment. Don't ever forget that, that there's a judgment and yet a beauty in all of how God works. So, Nebuchadnezzar comes back to the same general area and says, I will unify all of these nations and languages and tongues under my rule and for my glory as they come and gather around the image of me. Hmm. It'd be interesting to see in our day what kind of celebration that would receive. I think there would be many who'd be like, yeah, we are the world. We are the children. Let's all get together. Let's all just be united and glorify who? Anybody but God. Anybody but God. Hmm. Let's go on. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then, let's repeat these, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces, let's, let's be clear, pretty much every single person who's any position of authority, if, if you have influence under Nebuchadnezzar's rule and reign, you are to be here for this dedication. He gathered them all together for a dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, who set it up? King Nebuchadnezzar. How many times does the text repeat that to make it clear? Seven times by the end of it. Seven times. Number of completions. Think of this. The, the, the demonstration of the text wants to reiterate this extremely clearly. This was his idea. This was his doing. He is doing this in, in, in direct affront to what God revealed in the previous chapter. So you have a dedication ceremony gathering together. I kind of picture this initially like, well, okay, we got the invite. I guess we'll go uh, see what what he's built now. He's built some pretty amazing things. And you might be thinking, well, let's just go and check it out. We've got the beautiful gates. We've got the hanging gardens over here. Now he says he's built this huge golden thing. Let's go check it out. So you might even go not concerned initially. But oh, Remember who we're dealing with here. This is Nebuchadnezzar. So, verses 4 through 7, titled, Bow or Burn. Bow or Burn. Things get dark in a hurry as the crowd is gathered. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. That's significant. They're all gathered together to unify in this way. And this is is the act of unification. Unification. When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. When the music plays, everybody drops. That's the call. Well, all of a sudden, gathering to see what Nebuchadnezzar has built has changed significantly. There is a lot of people in this huge gathering who are now like, oh, well, hold on now. Hold on. What is this? What are you talking about? Well, ironically, this is a call to worship. (laughs) This is just blatant. Blatant. It is a call to worship. It's not enough to come and just see. Like, oh, wow, that's pretty impressive. Cool. Man, where, how do you get all that gold? How does it stand? No. This is more than that. This is bow down and worship the golden statue. Worship. Now, if someone told you to do that, what do you even say? All right? You're, you're standing before a pillar. It's not alive. There's, it's, just, it's a stack of gold, and it's carved... What are you going to bow down and say, oh, pillar of shiny gold? Like it's it's just it's crazy. It's a non thing. But that's the command. Ironically, all idolatry is crazy. It's crazy. Prophet Isaiah makes mockery of it. You cut a tree down, you take one end, you put it in the fire. You take the other end, you carve an idol, and you bow down before it. It's total lunacy. And yet, our heart's incline to it. We are inclined to it. There is an echo of idolatry that wants something tangible. I want to see it. I want to be able to bow down to it. I, w- I, want, it. I want to engage the senses. And Nebuchadnezzar has done a great job of that. He even brought in musicians from all these different nations to make some incredible music. All you got to do is bow down and worship. And if you're having a hard time with that, let me add a little motivation. Okay? He goes on Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Okay? So this isn't just arrested, hauled off, tried, convicted, and then someday. No. The furnace is there, and it's burning. It's immediate. You are dragged and thrown in. That is the call. If you don't do this as the king has commanded, you will die, and you will die a very painful death, burned to a crisp. Hmm. Well, that just ramped up the stakes a bit, right? This, this This is a significant impasse that we have if you are a follower of the Lord God. Pride and compliance go hand in hand. That's why you see this ever increasing. Consolidation of power is one thing, but here's what Nebuchadnezzar really wants. He wants absolute obedience. Total obedience. Any reservation or hesitation, well, I don't know, I mean, it's great, but I think you could have done a little better job with a beard. Like, this is a little off. I'll wait No, it's bow. Bow or burn. That's the call. No arguments, no explanation needed. That's what he wants. So then the question is if you were in this crowd, are you going to stand tall or are you going to bow? And you know this. I mean, you know, here you are. You're in this massive sea of humanity, and the music, you see them, they're about to play. How the bagpipes are happening there, it's beyond me, but they got all kinds of cool instruments, and they are ready to go, and you are there. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Friends, one of the things that I was struck by as I studied is how God has been preparing these men for this moment. He prepared them in chapter one by showing what he can do with kale and carrots, right? He prepared them in chapter 2 by showing them that he could do what no one else could do as he answered the prayers they prayed. It wasn't just Daniel who was praying. Remember this. These three were praying as well. And now they find themselves in this situation. How will they respond? When the music played, nearly everyone dropped and began the silliness and the insanity what are we saying? What's happening? What do you, what, what you say? I don't know. Just start talking. Say something. Nearly everyone fell to their knees. Now, if you've ever been in a crowd and you're standing and talking to someone and then all of a sudden you look around and everyone's seated and you're like, whoa, it is incredibly awkward. You, you are standing and everyone else is seated. That's what's going on here. The music plays, and the masses fall to their knees. Friends, believers have found themselves in this situation time and time and time again. Probably not before a 90-foot golden statue. But oh, how many times throughout history the same thing has played out. Bend the knee and comply. Or you will be killed. And what brothers and sisters we will meet someday who stood tall. I will not do it. I will not recant. I cannot. So help me God. What a legacy, friends. (laughs) What a legacy we have of those who've run the race before us. Now, flattery and jealousy... Flattery and jealousy. Verse 8. Therefore, at a certain time, Chaldeans, uh, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now, these Chaldeans, remember who they were? These were the guys who were kind of running the show over all the wise men. They were in charge, and then the whole dream thing happened, and basically, they should be dead. All of them should be dead if it wasn't for Daniel. And, and the Lord who graciously spared their lives. But the problem is, is that things have changed for them. They, they have experienced a significant lowering of the rank. All of a the sudden, they find themselves reporting to a teenage Jewish boy who, who is now over all of them. And these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have been promoted to a province in Babylon. So they are... They are not cool with that. They are not happy that there's a a number of teenage Jewish boys, outsiders, who are running things in their area. That's the maliciousness of this attack. They came to accuse the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Now, if you want to start and play to the man's pride, here you go to a king who's who's doing everything he can to establish his legacy. And you begin with, oh, king, live forever. You know, the king, he's like, I like that. Come on, keep talking. I'm liking how that sounds. That's playing to his ego. And they just keep at it. You, O king, have made a decree. And then they tell every single word of it that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Now, at this point, w- why are they doing this? They are saying, basically, we heard you say this, and we're, we're wanting to know that, that you're a man of your word, because you said that this was your commitment And we want to see if you're committed to upholding your word. They put him in a situation where his ego has to win. He can't help himself. Hmm. They play to pride. And they go on. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They don't like them. They know them. they're, They're not happy with this. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. At that point, you can begin to see the vein begin to move in Nebuchadnezzar's neck as as the red moves past his ears and he is furious in rage. He commanded that these three be brought, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be brought before him. So, he, he basically is saying, how dare anyone defy what I have commanded? Who do they think they are? I am the golden statue. I am the image. And they think that they can break my will? We will show them. So he's in a rage. I just was struck by this, and I, I think as a side note, we need to address this. The king rages again. Have you noticed a pattern with Nebuchadnezzar? He is a man given to rage. What is rage? Rages, anger released. It is, it is when you are overcome with this incredible strength that flows from anger and you just, oh, you release it. You rage. Well, what, what does it look like? Oftentimes things begin to fly. You begin to throw things or punch pillows or, or squeal the tires or whatever it may be. Or as some of our responders, who are here, can can say, punches begin to fly. People begin to be attacked. Let's just say this categorically. In the Christian life, there is never an appropriate time for the expression of rage. Ever. Ever. A release of self-control. You realize, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It is to be... On display in the Christian life. So sure, righteous anger? Yes, that can be righteous anger, but, but to release that anger in, in a lack of self-control, to completely just ah, fly off the handle. Nope. Nope. Our God is not like that. The fury of our God is chosen. When Jesus flipped the tables, he did so in total control of his anger. He wasn't flying off the handle and going Tasmanian devil. And neither should we. We should not release rage. So if you're on Facebook and you're angry, just got to vent, just got to vent. Don't do it. It's sin. It's wrong. If your spouse has done something that's really made you angry, don't throw the pillow. Make an agreement. Married couples, make an agreement. We will not release rage when we are upset with one another. Because it starts with a pillow, and then it moves to what? A coffee cup? And then what next? And then all of a sudden, the police show up because things got out of hand, and you can't even believe how that happened. Don't go down that road. Rage has no place in the Christian life. This king, godlessly and in total pagan display, rages again. And when this guy rages, people die. People die. Where is Daniel? That's a question that I was one of the first questions I was trying to figure out this week, and the answer is I don't know. I don't know. I can say this with confidence: if he would have been in the mix, he would have been standing tall too, right there with his buddies. He would not be bowing. So, where is he? I don't know. But I'm kind of glad that he's not in chapter three because uh, it's helpful to be reminded that the God of Daniel is not exclusively the God of Daniel. He's not just Daniel's God. He is the God of all who look to him in faith. And so as uh, his three buddies prayed in chapter 2, now they find themselves in chapter 3 in a similar situation, praying to the Lord, and he shows up. So Daniel's not in view in this chapter, but his friends are, and God is very much on display here too. Now verse 13b to 15, testing loyalty and claiming omnipotence testing loyalty and claiming omnipotence. Here comes Nebuchadnezzar as they are brought before him. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, what's interesting is, they don't, he doesn't really give them time to answer. Because he's mad, right? He, and he's bringing this thing. Now, here's what he says next. Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. Well and good. Now, i us struck by this well and good. First of all, why is he even talking to them? Why aren't they in the fiery furnace already? I think it's possible that as they bring these guys in, he's like, oh man, these are Daniel's buddies. Like, he may be having a bit of a, a like, oh, oh, these guys. Well and good. Why is he doing this? It's like he's giving them an opportunity to obey. Like, just, guys, just maybe, maybe be like this. I don't know, but possibly. Don't make me look bad here, right? Everybody knows what I've said. This is a public thing. So just do what I say and you'll be fine. You might even have the sense like, he's just like, just, just, just do it already. Just come on, come on. People are watching. Hmm. Now, what if they were there, these three, and they're like, hold on, just give us some time. I, I love how Brian Borgman talked about this in, in his sermon on this passage. He, he's like, what if they huddled up and they're like, okay, guys, here's the deal. None of us want to bow. But don't forget, we're, we're in a foreign land. This is a different culture than ours. And, and, and these are pagans, and hey, but we're here. So what if, just, just throwing one out here, what, what if we bow with our bodies but not with our hearts? Right? It, we'll just give the king what he wants because his ego is so big, but, but we want to have influence in this culture. We want to be here. We want to still kind of be able to speak, and, and if we're dead, we can't do that. So let's just compromise. Give the king what he wants and then hopefully the Lord will be okay and, 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 and we'll, just, we'll just live that way. Compromise. There are churches in our day that have taken that approach. They, they have walked this path of, well, we really are here to, to shine, and in order to shine, we've got to kind of pull back from this over here, and we'll apologize for this. Eh, this verse, we're sorry about that. We really don't believe this, so, world culture love us and we'll try to keep some kind of witness in the midst of it. How's that work? It doesn't. How many denominations have fallen to make that clear? It doesn't work. It's poison. It's absolute poison. Compromise is toxic. The fact that there's only three should say a lot. Where are the rest of the Jewish boys who were brought out? Where are they? They're bowing. They're bowing. Hmm. He goes on. If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then he adds this. This is really the theological high point of the entire chapter. It's scary to even say these words. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Wow. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Why does he say this? Well, because he has conquered. <laughs> he conquered Jerusalem. He's still convinced that he is stronger than all of the gods that he has conquered. So so why would I not think that I am basically on par with divine? Do you think any of these gods that I have conquered have anything to say? And what do these three men know? They know that God wielded you to discipline our nation. That is why you won. It is not because our God is impotent or unable. It is because you are the, 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 the rod of discipline in his hand. You didn't conquer our God. And your days are numbered. Hmm. It's a blasphemous challenge. Truly blasphemous challenge. It reveals the heart of Nebuchadnezzar like few other words. I'm reminded of Psalm 2, the king's Of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What is our God's response? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Look at this silly little guy with his golden statue, like a little ant declaring his sovereignty. Before me, the God of all of creation. It's laughable. The Lord holds them in derision. He's not threatened. God is not threatened by little Nebuchadnezzar. He is not concerned when world leaders rise up and do horrible, evil things. He is sovereign over it all. These men know that. They know exactly what's going on. Firm convictions and the fear of the Lord. Years ago, someone shared this with me, and it's always echoed in my mind. I said, you know, opinions are things that we hold. Convictions, however, they hold us. Think of that. Opinions, you yeah, you can have opinions. That, that You hold them. You might hold them. Convictions that flow from the Word of God, they hold you. They hold you. Well, they're true. Capital T, truth. It is exactly what it is, and I know it's true, and there's nowhere for me to go. I know it's true. What else am I going to do? But stand. Firm convictions in the fear of the Lord. It is firm convictions, my friends, that are equipped in days of study and days of preparation that meet us exactly in the moment of testing and trial. And God is faithful to do that, He builds us for the moment. That we might respond in faith and fear him and obey him and trust him and walk out whatever need be before us. These men know the commandments of God. The very first commandment we read in Exodus 20 I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Period. Pure and simple. Next, you shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or the water under the earth. That includes a pagan Babylonian king. And then here is a very simple and clear command. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He says, if you're going to bow before anyone, you should bow before the only one who is worthy. And that, he says, is me. I am the Lord your God. There is only one place to bow, only one person to bow before, and that is the God who is. So the response is actually very simple for these men. They're not fuzzy on what they should do. They know exactly what is expected of them by the Lord himself. And the strength from heaven meets them in this moment, So listen to how they respond, and then we will finish up today and pick up the rest of the story next week. Settled, settled in the sovereignty of God. That's the theme for the whole book of Daniel. And frankly, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to consider. At rest, at peace, I am confident, I am happy, settled in the sovereignty of God. Their response, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, how many people do you think told the man that? (laughs) This is Nebuchadnezzar. He's burning people alive who, who disobey. And they said, we don't even need to answer you. They go on. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able, key words, underline that, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Very simple. We're not going to do it. Now, there's a lot happening in here, and it's spectacular faith. This is spectacular faith. Look at how they say this. First of all, they draw attention to this. I think probably as much for, Her- uh, for Nebuchadnezzar's benefit as anyone. Our God is able to save us. He is able. To answer your blasphemous challenge, what God can save you from my hands? Uh, easy answer. The God. And and you're not Him. The God who is is able he is sovereign you are not friends it is such a precious reality to know this to not just know but love this to delight it to embrace this with all your heart he is sovereign overall there is no greater comfort in the christian life than to know that fact there's nothing you can face where god is like oh man wow what do i do here I need, I, I, I can't, no, never, it'll never happen. He is able. Then they say this, he can deliver us, and we believe he, he will, I think that's what they're saying. We're, we're pretty sure he's going to deliver us, but if he chooses not to, but if not, what does that mean? Is that a lack of faith? But if not, there are people that say, when you pray, if you have any category of, of, of something like that. You you are basically not praying in faith. That is dead wrong. Jesus Himself prayed in the garden. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Our faith is not in faith. Our faith is in God. You see the difference? If you believe that faith is a faith in faith, well, I'm just trusting, I'm just putting faith, well, then, then you're going to get stuck on this because you, you're like, well, I can't have any doubt, I can't, I, can't, I can't wonder, well, if I have any reservation about it, what if it doesn't happen? Well, I don't know what to do. No, our faith is in God. We've got to remember this. So if you find yourself in a situation and you are praying, uh, uh, let's say the diagnosis is cancer, And you say, Lord, we're coming to you. We're praying. We ask that you would heal. Where do you begin? We know that you can. We know that you can. That's not in question. We don't doubt that in the slightest. You can heal. And we pray that you would. We pray that you would. But there's one more step for faith-filled Christian dependence. And it's this. True faith trusts God's infinite power and... His all-wise and sovereign purpose. So, we pray, we know that you will heal ultimately, either through the the, the removal of this cancer and and a healthy body, or through bringing me home to be with you. Whatever you choose, we trust. Whatever you choose, we trust. That's not a lack of faith. That is absolute trust in a God who is sovereign and all wise. I've done funerals here. I remember one funeral in particular where a man that we love dearly died and this room filled up with people and I preached the gospel and guess what? That day, there was a man in this room who was saved. Supernaturally, powerfully saved in the proclamation of the gospel. And then you step back and you say, well, why why did this man die? One answer of probably 10,000 is that when we put him to rest, God saved. So, his all-wise and sovereign purpose. Were we praying, Lord, help, help this man live? Yes, we were praying. Is God able? Yes, he is. But his purpose and wisdom in that was that he would be laid to rest such that God would do all of these other things. We are not God, we don't see as He sees, but He is, and He is all-wise, and He is all-powerful, and everything He purposes, He does. Reminds me of Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things, all things, every single thing works together for good. He works it together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Here's another one to draw your attention to. You say, well, what if these guys are martyred? What, what if at the end of the day they're just like crispy in the fiery furnace? D- did they not have enough faith? Is that the problem? They didn't, they didn't pray with enough faith? Wrong. God willed that they die as martyrs. Go to ro- uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. You read this When the Lamb, that is Christ, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. This is the the table of martyrs. And they cried out to God with a loud voice. Listen to the title they give him. "O sovereign Lord. There's a, a, a statement of confidence. We trust you, we look to you, and we cry out to you holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What are they crying for? Justice. They're crying for justice. These are those, like these three men, who stood before godless men and were slain. How were they comforted? Well, they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Listen to these words now until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. That is, those who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You see what's happening here? There is a number set by God, and that is the number of martyrs who are to glorify God by laying their lives down in obedience to God faithfully and not recanting and not bowing. And they are killed and that number is not complete until God fills it to His glory. So we live for His glory and we die for His glory. And these men are prepared to do exactly that. But if not... We will not bow. We will will go out in a blaze of glory because we know who is sovereign. This infuses confidence, my friends, in the God who is. We will not bow like everyone else. We will stand tall. In God we trust. Friends, that's not just a a throwaway thing that you see from time to time on our currency, I'm truly amazed that it's still on there. For us, it's true. It's true. And it changes everything. It changes everything. We won't fall. We won't follow. We're not going to just blindly follow the the sea of humanity in the trenches of sin. No, we will stand tall. In our strength, no, no. Could we stand in our strength? We would cave in a heartbeat. How do we do this? By His grace. Trust Him. Depend upon Him. Our response this morning, a few thoughts here. There's a lot of things that we need to pull out here and and, and watch out for in our own lives. One would be the perils of pride. Oh, how dangerous pride is. How toxic it is to the Christian life. It's there, friends. It's in all of us. And it's got to be addressed, hunted, and choked out, pursued, and put to death in the power of the gospel. Walk in humility as Christ so did. The pull of idolatry. We don't have statues, but oh, the idols abound, don't they? They are everywhere. They might not present themselves at the front door. Hey, I'm an idol. Bow down right? That rarely happens. But your heart can be pulled. And all of a sudden, you can find yourself in a situation where your heart is divided. Set on guard against that. Assess what it is. What calls to my heart for my worship and my esteem more than the God of creation? Don't ever put Him in second place. The power of peer pressure. We've lived this out in recent days. I mean. My goodness, it's amazing to see how an entire nation, even an entire world can just overnight be like, "Oh, we're all going this way." Christian, engage it. Discern. Be wise. Don't just follow the masses. If the call is to bow, the answer is simple. We will not comply. We we will not comply if the state decides to try to reach in and tell us what we can and cannot do in worship of the God of all glory, the answer is simple. That's not your place. We serve God, and we will faithfully follow Him. So, remember this, God alone is sovereign. He is in control. He is the sovereign. He is the one to be um, esteemed. And in that is connected this. He alone is worthy. The only one that we bow to, the only one who is worthy of our worship is the God of all glory. And third, he alone is able. Only God can save you from your sins, right? From the sinless slavery that we are all entrapped by from the moment we are born in this world. We are slaves of sin, rebels, haters, uh, enemies of God. We need salvation only God can do that through His Son, Jesus Christ. He alone is able. In every situation you find yourself in, run to Him. Go to Him. Look to Him. Depend upon Him. And as you do, may the words of Deuteronomy encourage us all. Be strong and courageous, Good Shepherd Bible Church. Be strong. And courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. It's the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Now, next week is going to show that. He will not leave you or forsake you. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how intense the pressure, you are not alone. Stand tall and trust Him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for these encouraging words. We thank you for your promises that meet us in this place. We thank you for the way that you sustain us all, oh, for the comfort that you bring. Lord, I thank you for the example of these three young men. I pray that you would raise up more generations of young people like this, strong, established, confident, trusting you. Tenacious to obey you and not follow the crowd. Oh, make it true of all of us, Lord, more and more. We thank you for the state that you've placed us in. It is dark. We thank you for this county, Lord, that you have sought to, uh, to, to reach the lost through us. And we pray that, that we would shine. Help us in the workplace. Help us in the gatherings, in the neighborhoods, in all the places that you put us, Lord. Help us to stand tall. For it is in you we trust. It is you that we worship. It is you that we obey. It is you that we fear and honor and esteem. Be glorified, we pray, as we walk through this week. We pray that we would stand tall like these men and stand out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.